Disclaimer, some of the topics discussed in this podcast will involve violent or otherwise triggering content. I'm not a lawyer or legal expert on any of these cases, and all of my opinions are just that. Thanks so much for listening, and let's get on with the show. Welcome to True Crime Updates, a podcast rounding up all the latest breaking news and updates on some of the biggest cases in the world of true crime. Hi, y'all. Welcome back to another episode. Thanks so much for listening and for tuning in. This has been an exciting week. I said out loud today, I was like, what a year to start this podcast. I think I'll have definitely peaked year one, which kind of sucks because this is the year where I have had no idea what I'm doing. I'm getting into my groove. I'm learning all this. And I don't think we're ever going to have such a bumper year in terms of true crime updates. There's just been so much happening. I swear it's like every high profile case that I've been following is coming to a head. And we have another week of those updates. Like I just keep thinking, okay, we're going to run dry. We're going to be scraping the bottom of the barrel, which is true. Like eventually, I mean, it's not because there's always so many more cases and what we will do, which is very good, is just be able to focus a little bit more on some of these less high profile cases that deserve more attention than they're getting. But I feel like right now the true crime news realm has just been so sucked up by all these like big updates and these big high profile, the high profile cases. And we do have three more of those tonight. And every single time I sit down to record, my cat's like, no, I want in. And then I let her in. I want out. So one sec, go Ellie. Let her out for the third time in the last four minutes. Dude. As I was saying, we have three major updates tonight, and yeah, hope you've all been having a good week. I will say, I have been down a rabbit hole of the opposite of true crime, which is just like celebrity gossip. I don't know what it is. I want to read this new like Dumois book that's out. I've just been following like all these kind of like junky celebrity gossip podcasts, and whatever you feel like that, you know, whatever that means I don't really care because it makes me so happy. And I've done this since I was in middle school. So it's, I guess I will say I'm consistent. I've always just been fascinated with like reading people and pop sugar when I was younger. And now I'm just like listening to the pop apologist podcast and not skinny, but not fat. Although I don't love that title. So if you need to like escape from true crime, get a little breather, you know, we're all multifaceted people. You don't have to be like one or the other. So I don't have anything. Oops. I don't have anything profound to say. It's just been, um, yeah, a busy week and I've been zoning out and disassociating with celebrity gossip and it's, it's been lovely, but to delve back into the dark side, we have three major updates tonight. And then I have some media recommendations. I wanted to follow up on a prior recommendation that I actually watched and share my thoughts on that. And then I'm also reading a book that's sort of true crime adjacent that I will recommend. And as always, thanks for listening. Please remember to rate and review. I'm starting to say this now because I never remember to say it at the end, I feel. Um, Yeah, please rate and review if you've enjoyed this. If you didn't, you don't need to leave a review telling me that I talk like too fast, too slow. I swallow too much. I have too too much spit in my mouth. I sound millennial. I have vocal fry like I know. Okay, Um, so let's dive in. All right. So am I a prophet? Because the first update tonight, I was literally just saying last episode and to everyone who will listen ever how it would make my life if they reopened the John Benet Ramsey murder case. And that is exactly what has freaking happened. So since we last spoke, the John Benet Ramsey murder case is being reopened, has been reopened, and is going to be reinvestigated by a private cold case team. 
So they'll be re-examining decades-old DNA in her case that was never really tested to the capacities that we could test it now with the advances in, you know, DNA technology and science. And this is going to be done at a private DNA lab. So the Boulder Police Department, who originally handled this case and was honestly widely publicized, very much so by the family themselves, who really felt like they dropped the ball, they're going to be the ones um, consulting with this Colorado cold case review team. So it's not just a redo of what we've already done. It's not just the Boulder Police Department taking it back up. It's this private cold case review team, and they're going to be working in like a consulting capacity capacity um, with the police in 2023, according to multiple sources. So for a quick recap, maybe you're too young to really know this case. I was basically the same age as this girl when it was happening in real time. So I just remember it being on the cover of every tabloid magazine at the grocery store for like years. It felt like so for a quick recap, John Monet was a six-year-old girl. She was living in Boulder, Colorado, and she was murdered in her own home on Christmas night of 1996. Some things that are kind of pertinent and sort of, I don't know, I do think color this case are the fact that she was a beauty queen. She was doing all these child pageants. Her mom was also a beauty queen. She was very in the public eye. A lot of attention was on her, which doesn't necessarily mean anything, but could mean something because a lot of eyes were on her. She was very visible and she was honestly pretty just exposed to a lot of creeps and weirdos out there who could have, you know, known about her more than you'd probably know about an average six-year-old girl living in Boulder. So she lived in this giant house with her family. Her family was very, very wealthy and her parents, John Benet and Patsy, found her murdered in the basement on Christmas morning. So actually it was Christmas Eve night, I guess that she was allegedly killed, but they found her on Christmas morning and carried her upstairs, which was really just the first step in this totally tainted case. It was botched by sloppy policing, multiple people, many people being allowed to traipse in and out of the home that day, which just totally contaminated the evidence in the crime scene. There were so many issues with this case from start to finish, and that's probably a large part of the reason that it's, as of yet, still unsolved. Okay, and I slightly misspoke. It was the morning after Christmas that she was found, so she was most likely killed Christmas night. Just a minor detail, but I didn't want to sound like I didn't know this case because that was just my bad. So the way her body was found, there were signs that point to some sort of tra sexual trauma or abuse. There was bizarrely a garrote tied around her neck, which is like kind of this knot slash strangulation method that not the average Joe would know to do. Um, it's this like really elaborate thing where you can like tighten it with like a stick or something through it. I don't know too much about it, but it was this really bizarre out of the ordinary way um, to find her body. She also had an eight inch or so crack in her skull. And there was this incredibly bizarre ransom note found the scene that was like many pages long. It seemed like somebody had written it who had only heard of ransom notes from like Western movies. It was incredibly theatrical, incredibly lengthy. Whoever wrote this took a really long time to write it. And it was also like very theatrical in the sense that it asked for super specific things. Like it asked for, uh, basically it was saying we're, we're holding your daughter ransom, which was not true because she was dead by the time that it was found asking for a really specific sum of money for her safe return. And it was the exact sum of money that the father, John Ramsey, had been given that year as his Christmas bonus, which is bizarre because it kind of begs the question, 
who would know that? It wasn't even a high amount. Her parents were multimillionaires, lived in this massive house. I've actually driven past the house when I lived in Colorado. I took a morbid road trip and went and saw her house. Um, and it was this massive house. Anywho, they had a lot more money to give than what that ransom note asked for. But it was just bizarre that the note was asking for the exact amount he had just been given. So at the time, her parents and brother were initially suspected, um, but they were officially cleared by the Boulder prosecutors in 2008. But that really hasn't stopped them from being very much in the public conversation and speculation as suspects in this case, even though they were formally cleared. A lot of people feel like they must have had something to do with this. And some reports had even linked Passy's handwriting and the writer of the ransom note. And that's kind of disputed, as is a lot of things in this case. It's like nothing seems to be really certain and a lot of things could go either which way. So in terms of DNA, obviously the sophisticated testing that we can do now was not an option back in 1996 when this happened. There has been some DNA apparently found on her underwear and fingernails that is reportedly belonging to somebody not a member of the family. So this kind of lends fuel to the fire that this might have been an outside intruder, which is actually what the family insisted on at the time. And this was some people think. I mean, Rabia thinks that. They just did a really great Rabia and Ellen solve the case. I've talked about this podcast a couple times, but just um, two episodes ago, they covered John Bonet, and that's her theory that it was an outside intruder. And I mean, Robbie doesn't know everything, but she's been really right about some high profile cases. So not for nothing. I was a little bit more convinced of that direction after hearing Robbie. But anywho, the problem with that is this case has been so muddied by the fact that, I mean, DNA in general is just not as cut and dry as people think, but especially in such a compromised, contaminated crime scene where DNA found on her could have been from her killer, but also household members who handled her, who came in and out of the house, interacted with her the night before at this party they were at. I've even heard that the DNA found on the underwear could be something as mundane as from the people who made the underwear. People just don't realize how imperfect DNA is as a whole. If you're in the area, it doesn't mean, you know, if you're in the area or in, had interacted with her at all, your DNA would probably be found on her. That doesn't mean you killed her. And, you know, on the other hand, like the person who killed her, their DNA could maybe not be on her. Like you just don't, it's just a really imperfect, even when a crime scene is properly closed off. And this one absolutely wasn't from the start. So anyway, what I'm seeing is they will be using, obviously, the latest DNA technology available on this to re-examine it, including genetic genealogy, which has been, you know, to thank for so many cold cases finally being, um, why did I just say it, killed, solved. Wow, lately. It's late at night, y'all. I'm, I'm trying here. So I'm really excited to see what happens. It's one of the kind of longest running cold cases that just captured everyone's attention. And obviously, it's kind of like a I guess, early example of the like missing white woman syndrome, in this case, murdered white child. But there's a lot of other cases just as, just as deserving of this amount of attention. But this one really has just been such a mystery. It's a lot of people's like, if they could know, it's mine. It's the case where I'm like, if I could know the answer to any case, I think I'd want to know the answer to this, along with lots of others, but it's up there for me. So this is pretty exciting. Hopefully something comes of this and I'll definitely be keeping an eye out and keeping you updated. Okay, second huge news, piece of news tonight. I was actually going to do a podcast earlier this week just on this as sort of like an emergency little mini episode, 
But then I was like, no, because by the time I get around to recording, something else will break. And it did. So we'll get to that. But this is a thing also where I don't have, I'm waiting for more, but it's, it's worth touching on because it's really, it's could be a huge moment in a really big case. And that, that is in the murder case of FSU law professor Dan Markell, who was shot in his yard and killed in 2014. And I've covered this a lot recently because we just had the trial this year of Catherine McBanoa. This is the woman who dated the convicted killer of Dan Markell. And if you haven't heard of this story, you can go back. I've covered it at length, so I'm not going to do a summary tonight. But she acted as the go-between between the Adelson family. This is the ex-wife's family of Dan Markell who really wanted him dead. And the South Florida gang members who were the ones who actually ended up pulling the trigger and killing him. She essentially was this link that set up and orchestrated the murder. She connected the hitmen with the people who needed this job done and was then paid off by the Adelsons, the family of the ex-wife. So she was just found guilty of first degree murder this summer and sentenced to life in prison plus then some, I believe it was plus 30 years. So that makes three of the players in this case locked away. Her, Sigfredo Garcia, which is her baby daddy and the actual guy who pulled the trigger and killed him, and his friend, Luis Rivera, who are both members of this gang. And now we're waiting on the rest of the chips to fall because the entire Adelson family, who were the ex-wife's family, the ex-wife wanted her husband killed in order to get their children during this messy divorce and flee Tallahassee where they lived and go back down down to South Florida to live near her family. And basically, Dan Markell was preventing her from taking their kids and moving back to where she wanted to move. So she had him killed. And that is as simple as I can explain this case. But the entire Adelson family, we all know is guilty. There's so much linking them to it. But up until very recently, none of them were in prison. Well, now we have Charlie Adelson in jail awaiting trial, which is huge. And after Catherine McBanoa got sentenced, everyone was like, why can she not just rat these people out? Because she knows everything. She definitely knows the Adelson's level of involvement. She knows that she was paid by Charlie Adelson. Like she, it's clear. So she really didn't say much though during her trial to spill and, and, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I can't think of the word. I'm Again, it's late. She didn't say much though. She didn't spill much about the Adelson's role in all this. And now all of a sudden, just as this, just as of this week, we heard that Catherine McBanoa was being brought up to Leon County. Um, she's down in South Florida serving out her sentence, but she was being brought up to appear at a closed door hearing in Leon County, allegedly ready to talk and potentially spill whatever it is that she knows about the Adelson's role in this. And people are saying, you know, this could be a watershed moment because if she talks, which apparently she is now ready to do, it only took like six years and two trials and a guilty sentence conviction and a life <laughs> uh, sentence. But I guess you know, she's now ready, apparently. And this is what a lot of people have been thinking slash hoping would happen because she's got nothing else to lose now. I think maybe the, the reality is sitting in, sinking in that she's going to sit in prison the rest of her life. She's never going to see her kids again. So we don't know what she said in this statement. It wasn't open to the public and none of the prosecutors or lawyers have been um, commenting on this, but we know that she was brought up for some reason and there's really what else could she be speaking about, honestly? So we also don't know how this could or if it could potentially impact her life sentence and maybe lessen it. 
But yeah, people are saying it's a watershed moment. It's potentially explosive. So hopefully we shall see soon. The next sort of big date in this is Charlie Adelson, the brother-in-law of Dan Markell, is sitting in jail and his trial is supposed to begin early-ish in 2023. Um, I think he has some sort of pre-trial hearing or like some sort of meeting in December, but nothing major until 2023. And hopefully whatever she has told people in Tallahassee this week is going to really help get him locked up, but ultimately get Wendy, the ex-wife, and get the parents who were all super wrapped up and involved in this. So that's what we're hoping and fingers crossed. Okay. I am getting this update out ASAP. This is really big news and you may have already heard if you have followed this case or honestly just like logged onto Twitter today, although this might be dating the episode because by the time this gets published, I don't even know if Twitter's going to be exist existing anymore. But this just broke today and Elizabeth Holmes went in for her sentencing today on her accounts of fraud as the CEO of Theranos, which probably everybody is familiar with. She had um, her trial this year and we've just been, she was found guilty and we've just been awaiting her actual sentencing date, which was today. And so everyone was just on pins and needles waiting to hear what would happen. And we knew that she faced as many as 20 years in prison. There was kind of a lot of speculation that she would not get that, um, but she could have gotten up to 20 years. And you might remember her, um, like, CFO, I believe was his official title, slash business partner, slash romantic partner. Sonny Balwani has also been on trial, and so we have not yet heard what he's going to serve. Um, and Elizabeth Holmes has been doing all of these things trying to get an additional trial, like really trying every trick in the book recently. She tried just a couple weeks ago to get an additional trial and a judge ruled like, no, sorry, you don't get another chance. Um, but yeah, she was found guilty for defrauding investors while running this like failed blood testing startup. And she was kind of hailed as like the next big thing and this innovator and entrepreneur mastermind, blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, today I was watching in real time. We I just happened to open Twitter, which I do once in a while. And this journalist, and I'll link to his Twitter, assuming Twitter still exists by the end of the night. It's at Scott Budman. And I'm drawing a blank right now on what his title is, but I know he's a journalist. And he was in the room and apparently it was a packed courthouse today. I saw a video of people filing in and it was just like shoulder to shoulder. And basically, I felt like I was there in real time because his tweets were really informative and like moment by moment what was happening. So basically, we heard from some uh, victim statements. We also heard from the prosecution who got up and just basically were saying like her intentions were or sorry, the prosecution was saying like week after week, she was knowingly defrauding people. She was practicing fraud. She had all these chances to stop. Like she loved the glamour and the limelight and the media attention and then her defense got up and said that basically her intentions were good and really tried to shift the blame to Sunny Balwani, her partner, and just basically said like, well, she's a nice and compassionate person. She's going to do good from here on out. I had said last week when I talked about this, it looked like she was pregnant. And by the way, she definitely is like hella pregnant. So that's no longer speculation. So that's like really an interesting choice to go get pregnant when you know you're facing 20 years in prison. And I feel like it honestly just lends to her sort of sociopath, sociopathy. It lends to her seeming like a sociopath is what I'm 
poorly trying to say here because it just makes her look so confident and cocky. Like, of course, I'm not going to go to prison, which we know she felt that way because there were all these texts between her and and Sunny being like, people attractive like me don't serve time, which just does not help her case. Right. But so then we heard from some victim statements, like from Alex Schultz, whose son worked for her, uh, Tyler Schultz, and whose father was an early investor. If you watch the Hulu show, his son was the one played by Logan Lerman and really was like a whistleblower and helped take her down. And so he was speaking to how this wrecked their family and that his son had to sleep with a knife after he left Theranos because he was scared he'd be killed. So then Holmes stood up crying and spoke for a bit about how sorry she is and gave this kind of quote of like how she wants to work on her changing herself and like she's so sorry. Um, and then the judge said she is sentenced to 11 and a quarter years. And then following that will be, I think, like on house arrest, essentially, or monitored for another three years. And that I was, I gotta say, I'm, this is a really good year in terms of people I think should serve time, having to serve time and people I think should get off getting off. So maybe I'll stop being quite so disillusioned, but in general, I'm pretty disillusioned. And I'm like, yeah, she's blonde. She's white. She's pretty, blah, blah, I guess. Um, she's whatever. She's not going to get anything. I was thinking like four five, six years. So I was a little surprised at 11 and a quarter. I gotta say it's not the 20, but it's not nothing. I mean, that means her kids are going to grow up without a mother essentially, which really sucks for them. I feel super sorry for them because this will be her second child. I do not feel sorry for her at all. This is so deserved. She ruined people's lives. I mean, someone killed himself, her former employee, because of the goings, the going-ons of her company. So, like, she absolutely deserves this. And she has to report and surrender her safe, herself in April. I'm assuming that's after when the baby will be born. Um, you know, that'll be here. That's only four months away. It's still kind of, like, a long time. And it gives me a little bit of concern because she's definitely expected to appeal this. And so anything could happen between now and April, but as of today, that's, that's the idea. She will be locked away for a while and good. That's what I have to say about that. So, uh, some media recommendations and then we'll wrap this puppy up, but I finally got around to watching The Good Nurse, which is on Netflix. It's a movie of a true story about serial killer, one of the most prolific serial killers of all time, Charles Cullen. And the nurse, Amy Laughlin, who I think it's Laughlin, who worked with him and was super instrumental in taking him down and getting him caught and turned in and, and arrested and ultimately in prison. And it was so good. I didn't, I recommended it kind of, but I hadn't seen it. I was like, let me just watch this. It was really, really, really good. So like a more hearty recommendation now, if you haven't seen it, it's Jessica Chastain playing the nurse, the good nurse. And um, Charles Cullen is played by Eddie Redmayne, who I generally like, but I was like, we're not talking enough about how good he was in this. I felt like he was so good and the perfect person to play this guy because from all accounts, this guy was like super unassuming, super like kind and gentle and timid. And I don't know. I just feel like Eddie Redmayne's such a little like fawn of a man. He's so like sweet seeming and soft-spoken and so he was so good in this and then when he turns like he oh it was chilling so basically he plays this nurse who like this isn't a spoiler but he killed dozens if not hundreds of his patients 
and went from hospital to hospital not getting caught because our medical system is broken and was just able to like poison his patients and put shit in their IV bags. Oh, it was so well done. It was just really great. Jessica Chastain's always great. So highly recommend that. And then um, that's my only thing I watched this week, aside from I'm keeping up with Nexium, uh, The Vow about Nexium season two, which is just unbelievable. So if you're not watching that, if you've somehow not watched season one, run. Season two, though, is so much more layered and so much more infuriating. I really thought nothing could top. I said to my boyfriend the other day, I was like, I really feel like the freaking vow has ruined documentaries. Um, Because I guess, okay, there was something else I watched this week. I forgot. I did watch God Forbid on Hulu, which is about this like cool boy slash three-way situation that was happening with the husband and wife who oversaw this prominent Christian university who have ties to like the high ups and Trump and all this like weird deranged stuff that was going on with them. And it was like, eh, but I don't, I don't know. I think I'm just ruined having watched the vow. Nothing compares. And I felt like it was cheap production value (laughs) compared to the vow because the vow is so gripping and I can't look away. But season two is just even more amazing and just infuriating. And like, I don't understand how Keith Raniere, I hate to say, hasn't been killed in prison yet because he is such a freaking monster. And some of the footage they show of him in season two with his stupid fucking little sweat wristband, terry cloth things, and his stupid sweatpants doing stupid volleyball and thinking he's like some parkour master doing handstands while he's like starving and abusing um, many, many, many people just makes me want as my best friend said, to take a machete to his limbs. I hate him so much. So anyway, there's that. Um, But aside from streamable stuff, I've been reading a book. It is called When We Were Bright and Beautiful. And it's not like creepy true crime. It's, I would say, true crime adjacent. I heard it described as Gossip Girl meets Gone Girl. And that's kind of the perfect description. It's set in New York. It's by Jillian Medoff, by the way, and it's about this crime. At the point I'm at, I'm not sure who did it. There's like, it's kind of this like, did he or didn't he situation of this family trying to prove the innocence of their son. And it's all about like privilege and blah, blah, blah. And I'm really early into it, but it's kind of got a creepy, ominous feel that's like suspense is building up, but it's not gory. It doesn't keep you up at night by any means. It's so far so good. It's fun. It's well written. So I recommend that. And uh, yeah, that's about all I got for you this week. I just keep thinking we've hit a high point and then more crazy updates just keep coming through. So I don't even venture to guess what we will have to talk about by the next episode, but I will keep you posted. We've got some things unfolding and hopefully by the time we talk next, we know a little bit more about one of these two uh, cases I mentioned tonight. And I guess we'll keep an eye on old Elizabeth Holmes as well. So thanks so much for listening. If you want to contact me about any feedback you have, or any cases, some of y'all have given me some updates or inside info on things, which I love to read. Please shoot me an email at truecrimeupdates, plural, at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate and review. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your day. 